This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. I have a friend named Ben who has faced death more than any person I have ever met. Um, I'm talking about a friend of this church, Archbishop Benjamin Kawashi, who's the bishop over Jos, Nigeria, Plateau State, Central Nigeria, Northeastern Nigeria. And uh, Archbishop Ben and his wife, Mama Gloria, have a fantastic ministry there, but they live in a very difficult context. A lot of violence, a lot of displacement of persons, a lot of warfare, a lot of terrorist attacks. In 1983, Ben was diagnosed with incurable tuberculosis, multi-drug-resistant tuberculosis, and doctors told him to prepare to die, but he didn't die. Then in 1987, terrorists attacked his home and burnt it, and miraculously, he and Mama escaped. Then in 2006, another group of terrorists came to come and get him, to kill him, but he wasn't there. So they were angry, so they beat Gloria within an inch of her life. A year later, they came back for him, and this time they got him. They took him outside, they made him kneel down in the dirt outside his home, and they pointed guns to his head, and he said, please let me pray. And he prayed from memory, Psalm 121, that who do I look to for help? From whence does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. He prayed the entire psalm. By the time he looked up, inexplicably, something he still doesn't understand, they were gone. This past October, he came to the United States with advanced colon cancer. I tell you, this guy has faced death a lot. He received some miraculous treatment, and he went back to Nigeria about three months ago, where he's still ministering in a dangerous context. A few months ago, the Wall Street Journal had a report on what's going on in Nigeria, and this is a quote from that report. A slow-motion war is underway in Nigeria. It's a massacre of Christians. This was not written by a Christian. It's a massacre of Christians, massive in scale and horrific in brutality, and the world has hardly noticed. Bishop Stewart and I were there in 2017. We visited four villages that had been destroyed by terrorists, four small villages. So Archbishop Ben lives in this very dangerous context. And sometimes I wonder when I think about his life, why does that guy, who's so faithful to Jesus, get so many storms? Why does he suffer so much? And Mama Gloria, why is that so hard? Now, that's not the way they look at it. Believe me, they don't look at it that way. But I do. Or in the title of my sermon, why are there so many dangers, disasters, and even death? Now, we're going to look at the storms of life. And when you hear the, the term storms, so we're going to talk about literal storms, but then there's also metaphorical storms. And storms could be just any hardships, any hard things that the church is going through. It could be hard things that you are personally going through or that your family is going through. Some of you I know have had situations in your family like maybe the birth of a child or maybe something just really tragic happened and it was like a storm and it, it still is. Or it could be the world. Afghanistan's going through a storm. Afghani refugees are going through a storm. So however you want to interpret that, I'm thinking primarily of the church, but if you want to think of it broader than that, go ahead. So the question is, 
When storms come, not if, but when, how shall we then live? How should we respond? It is one of the most important questions for anybody, Christian or not, but especially for those in the church, it's a question that we need to grapple with. And this passage gives us some guidance on that. Now, let me start by looking at the very last verse of the Acts of the Apostles, fifth book of the New Testament, written by Luke, who was a doctor, and as we're going to see, also an experienced sailor, a shipman, we're going to find out. The very last verse, so if you open your Bibles, if you want to follow along, we're going to, we're going to walk through a lot of chapter 27, which is basically storm after storm after storm after storm, and then a shipwreck, and then a snake bite, and then almost dead, and it's just like great adventure tale. But it ends in verse 31, and Paul is in Rome. He's in the great city of Rome. He's finally made it there, and he is under house arrest, and he doesn't know what's going to happen to him, but he has some freedom, and it says he was proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus, which is exactly the phrase that used earlier in this, in this chapter. So that's a key thing. He's, he's talking about the kingdom of God. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus with all, with all boldness and without hindrance. Literally, the last word is unhinderedly. It's, it's, uh, it's without hindrance, but the best translation is unhinderedly, and that's the last word in the book of Acts. In other words, Paul's got this wide open door. He's in this place of relative peace and safety. And he can just welcome people in. He's got friends around. He's got financial support. He's got this, this joy of ministry. Everything is clicking. This summer, I went out to Long Island. I visited some friends who I used to live for 10 years, and they took me on their boat out in the Long Island Sound, and so we went out to the Long Island Sound, we found this, this peaceful little cove, and the weather was perfect, and there was just a little breeze, but it wasn't choppy, and we sat out there on the boat, and they barbecued shrimp and steak, and I just thought, wow, shouldn't life be like this all the time? on your boat, with your friends, having steak and shrimp. The book of Acts kind of ends that way. And let me just say, that's not bad. Like, that's a good thing. God is a giver of good gifts. So that's a good thing. And sometimes we just want that. But life isn't always that way, is it? Life doesn't always end up that way. Let me just pause and just say something really important. I'm going to talk about the storms of life. And if you're here this morning and you're just reeling, reeling from profound trauma or hurt or mental health issues or just you're really struggling. And like a, like a young mom I talked to this week, I was telling her what I was preaching on. She just said, I don't know if I can hear a sermon about a shipwreck. I got four kids going back to school, and I already feel like I'm in a shipwreck. I'm not sure if I can really listen to that. Well, let me just say that there might be some of you who the message you need to hear 
is a message of the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters. And that's a good message. You may need to hear that this is the Lord. With the Lord, you have a safe place to deal with your pain, to deal with your trauma. So take that message with you. And if somebody asks you what the guy preached on today, you can just said, he just did blah, 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 blah. And then he said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, blah, 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 blah. But that's what I'm taking away from it. That's okay. But for many of us, many of us, the storms, we need to learn how to deal with the storms. Because in verse 31, so we have verse 31 right here. Verse 31 right here, unhinderedly. But right after that, the storms are going to break. It doesn't tell us the whole story. So here's the most likely scenario of what probably happened with Paul, although we're not perfectly sure. He probably got released, rearrested, retried, convicted, and executed. There's a storm ready to break. And then what we're going to do is we're going to look back because all throughout the book of Acts, there have been these storms breaking on the church, storms of persecution, storms of misunderstanding, storms of people hating them, storms of people resisting them. And especially in chapter 27, it's not just a storm, but it's a series of storms. Storm after storm after storm that ends in a shipwreck and a snake bite. Now, I love this passage. I've never really read it carefully, though. Always just one of those passages like, yeah, 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 storm, 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 shipwreck, I get it. But what is going on here? Well, first of all, I just want you to know that this is just amazing literature. It's really fun literature. So I have this whole section of books that I call adventure books on my bookshelf. And adventure books are true stories. They need to be true. They're not a novel of true stories of where people face dangers and disasters and possible death, and somehow they make it out alive. So, for instance, a plane that goes down in the Andes Mountains and the soccer team stuck in the snow up there, and they got to figure out how to get back to civilization. Or Teddy Roosevelt's trip down the Amazon River, called River of Doubt is the name of the book. Or a young U.S. Olympic team that goes up against the Nazis in Germany under the eye of Hitler, and somehow, well, I won't spoil it for you, but that's called Boys in the Boat. Amazing. I love these stories. These edge-of-your-seat, suspense, page-turner thrillers. Like, I can't wait to happen. What's next? Luke is writing that kind of literature. And let me summarize it for you. So we'll just walk through it really quick. I, I won't read all of chapter 27, but just give me, I'll give you some of the highlights. So it starts in chapter 27, verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, why are they going to Italy? Because Rome is in Italy. And why are they going to Rome? What's the big deal about getting to Rome? Well, back in chapter 23, verse 11, it says that the Lord Jesus appeared to Paul in a vision, or not a vision, just literally appeared physically. And he said to Paul, Take courage, as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Paul, you just won yourself a trip to Rome. No new car, but you're going to Rome. And Paul wants to go to Rome. He wants to get there. So Jesus himself gave his word, you're going to get to Rome. And what he didn't tell him 
is about the details of the trip of how he was going to get there. So we read that in verse 1, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Now, Julius, go back and read this, because Julius is a great character. He's a pagan. He's a military man. But he's a decent and good man. He demonstrates what we sometimes call common grace. Common grace means that God gives his grace all over the place, not just to believers in Jesus, but to those who don't know Christ. There's grace everywhere. God sprinkles it all over the place. So Julius is a good man. So they start this journey, and let me just give you some of the highlights. So verse 4, the winds were against us. Verse 7, we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty. The end of verse 7, the wind did not allow us to go farther. Verse 8, coasting along it with difficulty. Verse 9, and the voyage was now dangerous. Then verse 13, it says, now when the south wind blew gently, you think, ah, finally, it's going to be easy. And it is for a little while, but then verse 14, but soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. And then they start throwing cargo over left and right because they think the ship is going to sink. And then verse 18, since we were violently storm-tossed, then on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hand. And verse 20, they reached the low point when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. So even Luke, who's writing this, and probably Paul, who was experiencing it, they also lost hope. They think Jesus is not going to get us to Rome like he said he was. All hope is lost. And then on the 14th night, the ship is being driven, and some sailors get the brilliant idea, hey, guys, let's cut off one of the lifeboats and sneak out the back. So this is their plan to save their own necks. And Paul catches them and goes, hey, Julius, look at these guys over here. And Julius says, hey, you guys can't do that. Stop that. So they stop this escape attempt. And then, just to make a long story short, they hit a reef. The ship breaks up. Everybody starts going crazy. It's every man for himself. Make it to shore. And then the soldiers say, hey, before we go, let's kill all the prisoners. Because if we don't kill them, then the Roman authorities will kill us. And Julius says, no, 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 we can't do that. Paul's too valuable, so don't kill him. And then they wind up on an island. So you're reading this, and you're going, wow, there's a lot of action in this. This would make a great movie. But why is it in the Bible? What is God trying to tell us in this narrative what would Luke, the original author, in the narrative arc of this story, what is he trying to do? Well, I think it's simply this. He's trying to show us, trying to show the church that God, in his fatherly care and goodness, will lead us to the destination that he has in mind for us. Now, the word for that is providence, the providence of God, which comes from the word provide, that God in the end, through all the twists and turns, through all the ups and downs, through all the tears and hardships, will lead us to the good destination that he has for us. Ultimately, that's heaven. 
But that also, we get taste of that in this life as well. And here's the thing. God leads us to our destination often, not always, but often not around storms, dangers, uncertainty, risk, tears, hardship, and setbacks, but often through those very things. So remember that promise that Jesus gave to Paul when he showed up and appeared to him and said, Paul, I'm going to get you to Rome. Now Paul, and then chapter 28, verse 14, I, I love this, 28, 14, it says, after all this stuff, and they get there, it says, and so we came to Rome. Like, so understated. And so we got to Rome. And if I was Paul, I'd be thinking, yeah, Jesus, but you didn't tell me about the fine print in this contract. You know, the storms, the shipwrecks, the snake bites, almost dying three or four times. And I think Jesus probably would have said, well, actually, Paul, I did tell you about this. I was really upfront about this. So in chapter 9, when Paul first meets Jesus, Jesus tells this guy named Ananias to tell this to Paul, to say, to go to Paul, and he says, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And then in chapter 14, verse 22, Paul and his friend Barnabas, it says they were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So you're not only going into Rome, you're going into the kingdom of God, but it's not around, it's often through. So as I'm reading this, I'm two questions. First of all, how does the church respond when we're in the midst of storms? Paul had a different response than the other sailors. What, how did, what was it? Where did he get that from? Well, Remember chapter 28, 31, that zone of peace that you're out in the cove, on the boat, having a barbecue with your friends on a beautiful day? God gives days like that, seasons like that. Praise the Lord. Maybe you're in one. Enjoy it. May you experience the blessing of the Lord. But here's the trouble that we get into. When we start demanding that God always gets us into that place, that it's always supposed to be like that, on a, in a cove, on a boat, with my friends, having a barbecue. When we get shocked and angry and threatened by others who are threatening to take that away from us, then the church goes into attack mode. We get defensive. We get brittle. We get anxious. We get angry. We attack, or we get into self-protection mode. We become like an armadillo, and we just kind of curl in on ourselves. Or we get into nostalgic mode. It's like, oh, for the days when we had it easier. Oh, for the days when the church was like this, or our country was like that, or the world was like this. And yeah, that's not wrong, but you don't live in those days. You live today. So what do you do today? 
Paul shows us an example here of don't miss the opportunity to be the church in the storms, proclaiming the kingdom of God and the resurrection of Jesus in the midst of the storms. Let me give you two examples from our text. I, I love these stories. So you, you heard um, Dina re read them so well and so passionately with your hands. I love that. This, should, this is a passage that's got to be read with its hands. It's got to be read by a Greek or an Italian. So that was really well. So because there's just so much energy and action here. So um, chapter 27, verse 33. So it's about, it's about to dawn. Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you've continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Now, Luke tells us there's 227, 276 sailors on this boat. And probably only a small handful of them are believers in Jesus. So Paul is not going into attack mode. He's going into blessing mode. And he says something very practical. Y'all just look really hungry. Let's just all take a deep breath, and let's get something to eat. I just, it's so practical. He's like an Italian, a Jewish, a Greek, a whatever mama, just like, I just want to feed you guys. I want to feed you. I want to strengthen you. Isn't that just so beautiful? I love that. It's like I told you about Grandma Kay from my first church in Barnum. So I was there this summer. And she's like, what? I want to make you a special meal. What do you want? Do you want turkey? Do you want roast beef? Or do you want roasted chicken? I said, I'd like all three. She's like, OK. What kind of pies do you want? Pies, plural. You get done eating. You have one piece of pie. That's it? You're not going to try all three of the pies? I mean, these people love to feed you. It's a sign of love. And that's what Paul is doing here. I just want to make sure you have something to eat. He's throwing a block party is what he's doing. It's been 14 days, guys. We're all ragged. We're all tired. We're all on edge. Let's just have a block party and let's enjoy each other. I love that. It's so practical. And then in verse 35 of chapter 27, and when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. Now, usually in the book of Acts, when the disciples are breaking bread, it's probably a reference to Holy Communion. Here it's probably not, because it's not a worship service, but it is very Jesus-like. And notice what he says there, not a hair of your head will perish. Who does that sound like? Who said that? He's quoting the words of Jesus to all of these non-Christian sailors. It's really tender scene. And then there's a second one, though. And I'll just summarize this one for you because we didn't read it, but it's at the beginning of chapter 28. So the shipwreck happens. They all swim for their lives. They get on shore. They come to this island called Malta. And on Malta, they're all they're tired, they're wet, they're cold, they're, they're dripping wet, they're all sogging. So they start a big fire. And Paul is out gathering some sticks, and he gets some sticks, and he puts them on the fire, just a bundle of sticks, puts it on the fire, and the heat causes a poisonous snake to come out. It comes out, and it bites him on the hand, and it's just hanging on his hand there. And everybody's going, ah! 
and he shakes it off into the fire. And then they're all, this is literally, this is in the Bible, so I'm just embellishing it a little bit, but the basic story is there. So they're all like looking at him like, this is a bad dude. This guy had this coming. He's going to, all of a sudden, he's going to start going into shock. He's going to maybe have a seizure. We can watch him foam at the mouth, and then, that's not all in the Bible, but then, and then we're going to watch him die. This is going to be great. And they're all sitting there waiting for him to die. And Paul is just sitting there enjoying the fire, and he doesn't die. And then they're like, oh my gosh, this guy must be a god, which is another problem for Paul. But at first, they're calling him a murderer. And he gets, he doesn't die. And then they go, hey, my dad's pretty sick. Would you come and lay hands on him and heal him? And so Paul and the other Christians do that. And so they start a healing service. Now remember, these are the very people that accuse Paul of being a murderer. What does he do? He turns around and he blesses them. He goes into blessing mode. He goes into proclaiming mode proclaiming the kingdom of God in Jesus. See, that's the church when she's at her best. We're always in proclaiming the kingdom of God, the message of Jesus, and blessing the world in practical ways. So, for instance, when we see a situation, when we see some, a young woman who's in a really difficult pregnancy and she wants to terminate her pregnancy, we see as a church, oh man, I want to bless. There's an opportunity. That's not an opportunity to attack. That's an opportunity to bless. When we see, like uh, Pastor Michael, that's one of the reasons why we like working, partnering with him so much on, on Chicago's west side and, and the violence in the streets there. And, and, I, and I told you a while ago, and with a span of 10 days, he did three funerals, all for young men who had been gunned down and killed by gun violence. And Pastor Michael says, this is horrible, but I am in this community, I am in this neighborhood, my church is in this neighborhood because we have an opportunity to proclaim the gospel and to bless. Pastor Michael goes into blessing mode, he goes into proclaiming mode. When we hear about the global crisis of refugees all over the globe who have experienced things that are not through their own fault, and they come to this country through our legally vetted process, 60,000 plus maybe another 10,000 Afghanis will come through our legally vetted process this year. We see that as an opportunity for the church to bless and to proclaim. So that's what the church does at her best in the storms. So where is Jesus in the midst of this storm? Where is he in this story? Remember verse 20 the darkest night, the darkest day, when all hope of our being saved was abandoned. In verse 21, there's another little beautiful little scene here where Paul stood up among them. So he stands up in front of all 276 guys on this ship. Literally, it says he stood forth. He stood forth and he says, men, he says men because they were probably all men on that ship, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Now, some people think, well, man, Paul's being kind of a jerk here. No, actually, he's not, because he's an experienced sailor. He's probably been on 11 trips, 3,500 3, miles, scholars estimate. He knows what he's talking about. You should have listened to me. I know what I'm talking about when I, t when I tell you how to, how to navigate this thing. 
It's just being honest. And then in verse 22, he says, Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Let me just pause there. That is Old Testament covenantal language, and it's really beautiful. The God to whom I belong. It's not just some God out there. It's not just some God I know. I belong to him. If you're married and you're with your, your spouse, and you're, you're, you know, maybe you're at a, like a party or something, and you say, well, who are you? And you say, well, I belong to her, or I belong to him. Or you're um, maybe a, a kid, and you go, well, I, I belong to them. They're my parents. Or you're really good friends, and you say, yeah, we belong to each other. We belong. We're, we're part of this. We're part of this together. It's, it's a sign of intimacy. It's a sign of closeness. And it's a sign of um, just that I belong. So Paul says that the God to whom I belong and whom I worship, he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. So for us, when we take the promises of Scripture, when we take the promises of Scripture, we take them for ourselves and we say, it will be as I have been told. We can repeat that to ourselves. And we can say, this God to whom we belong is not just the God of the coves, the harbors, the times hanging out with friends and a barbecue. He is that God, but he's not just that God. He is the God, the Lord of the storms. And he said, I am going to get you in my fatherly care and providence. I will get you where you need to go and when you need to get there. Doesn't mean it's not going to be easy. Doesn't mean it won't be hard. Doesn't mean you won't question. Doesn't mean you won't be angry and hurt and lament. But I will get you there. And notice, that's not on the faith of Paul or the Christians. That's on the faithfulness of this God to whom he belongs. So like us, our faith is weak. Our lives are flawed. Our love is fickle. Our efforts are, are frail. God knows we struggle with this. So what does he do? Every week, what do we do? What does he do? What does he invite us to? He invites us to the table. And he says, I can see you're all looking really tired. You've all faced some storms. And you're all looking hungry. Can you just rest and let me feed you? Can you just rest and let me give you something to drink? Last week, maybe you came out of a storm. Maybe you're going into a storm. This is the message that our God says, I belong to you, too. I have claimed you as my own. So as the priest says, these are the gifts of God as he holds up the bread and the wine. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Take them in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. Feed on him in your hearts. Feed on him. 
So week after week, we come to this harbor, we come to this cove, we come to this safe place, we come to this resting place, and we hear the the words of Jesus say, take and eat, take and drink. You look thirsty, drink. You look hungry, taste and see that the Lord is good all the time, even in the storms. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.